You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 70. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Shush. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the story from the third Doctor, Spearhead from Space. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So this is the uh, post-generation, regeneration story uh, for the third Doctor, where we're going through um, each of the Doctors, and we're we're discussing the... Uh, first story in which the doctor uh, the new doctor uh makes his appearance features and, yes and, and we're introduced to to him and his personality and his quirks and all that sort of thing um the third doctor is john pertwee and uh this episode was broadcast in january of 1970 it's in four parts uh four 25 minute episodes and um it was the first color yes true episode exactly Every- Everything before was in black and white. And this was also a significant episode in in a few ways. So previous to this, the previous story was The War Games, which is like a 10-parter that was the denouement for Patrick Troughton's second Doctor. And he was we in in The War Games, we learned for the first time that the Doctor's people are called the Time Lords. We didn't know their planet's name yet, um, but we knew they were called the Time Lords. And they put the Doctor on trial for interfering with uh, history too much and basically exiled him to Earth and forced a regeneration change, forced an appearance change. And um, and they did this uh, originally not knowing they were going to be picked up for a new season. There was some thought that the war games might've been the end of the whole series. And so then when they came back, it's, you got a new guy, it's now in color. It's uh, it feels like a new beginning for the series. And some people have noted that in a way, this is kind of the original new who. And if you look at the episode Rose from the 2005 revival, it bears remarkable similarities to this episode or to this story. You know, I, I was one thing I was thinking as I was rewatching this last night, and this is one of my favorite classic episodes. I really enjoy this episode, but the new Doctor episodes are kind of origin stories. You know, they're origin stories of this regeneration, and this one more so than any other really feels like that. Like you mentioned, like with Rose, kind of the same thing. It's kind of an origin story for new Who. Yeah. Well, and a couple of the aspects of it are uh, that make it similar uh, that you mentioned, Jimmy, are the villains are the same villains. Yeah. In this and in Rose. (laughs) Yeah. This is the first appearance of the Autons or the Nestines or the Nestine consciousness, however you want to put it. And also we have something similar with the doctor. He's apparently just regenerated and he's traveling alone. He has no companions when he shows up. And so it's a jumping on point for, uh, for new people. Right. And again, that's the first time they've done that with the, the regeneration of the second doctor. They kind of, they continued on with, um, uh, Perry and, uh, 
Ben, ben and yeah, Polly. Ben and Polly. Sorry. Perry was the sixth. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting better with the, uh, the classic who companions. I know I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of them. I mean, There's it's easy lot. to remember. It's easy to remember the different regenerations of the doctor. But I, I can't even remember how many companions there have been so far. Oh, I mean, that would be an interesting oh, trivia question. Depends on how you count them. Yes. Yeah. In, in, by the way, there's also, uh, speaking of things, uh, trivial things a lot of people don't know about, there is, a, there is a fascinating thing between the war games and Spearhead from Space, because we don't actually see Patrick Troughton regenerate in that. We see something that looks like he may be starting to regenerate, but it's not clear, and he kind of spirals off into the darkness. And then that presented with the sh- that presented the show's original extended media creators with a problem because the show was going on hiatus for a while and they were producing at the time Doctor Who comics that were coming out, you know, every week and they didn't know what to do. And so they just kept going with Patrick Troughton stories. And they explained that the Time Lords had planted him on Earth and that was the spiraling off into darkness. But he, they didn't change his appearance yet. And so um, the Patrick Troughton doctor had a continuing series of adventures in the comics that has now been known, come to be known as season six B because the war games was the end of season six and spirit from space is season seven. So season six B is what falls in between. And you can go and find those comics online because they're, they're out there. You can Google them there and, and read them. Um, but, uh, eventually once they knew who the new doctor was and once this show was coming back on the air, they did a, a cartoon where, uh, or a comic, uh, comic strip for the doctor where the time Lords send these scarecrows to enforce his regeneration. And he then regenerates into, uh, John Pertwee. And so we have closure in the comics, but we never got to see that on TV. And subsequently, what happened is a lot of a lot of uh, of extended media licensed fiction got set in and around season six B. And it was eventually canonized on the show when they brought Patrick Troughton back in the uh, six doctor uh, in the Six Doctor episode, the Two Doctors, and they, and which, and so apparently, in the from the point of view of the Doctor's timeline, that meeting of Colin Baker and Patrick Troughton is set in season six B. Well, you could kind of argue that they did that in the Five Doctors because he meets uh, Jamie, Jamie, yeah, and says you shouldn't remember me. They wiped your memory when they sent you back. Well, that was done right at the end of the War Games. Right, that was done right before he had his regeneration. So, yep. quote unquote, regeneration. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, this is the first time also that we have the regeneration concept was something that kind of grew on the show. Initially, as we mentioned, when we talked about Patrick Troughton's regeneration story, it wasn't called regeneration. He just said, I've been renewed. And there was a lot of thought. Maybe he's just a younger version of William Hartnell. But uh, and and they kind of dance around that at the end of the war games where the Time Lords say your appearance has changed before. Um, but the concept of regeneration is just now becoming defined. And um, so in a sense, this is kind of the first regeneration story where we've had the idea of him coming back as a fundamentally new person. Yeah. And they really put, I mean, that's not just a, a minor point. That is a real uh, key 
element in this episode. You know, the, 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 for one thing, the doctor has an extended period of time where he's unconscious uh, right. at the beginning um, mm-hmm. in the hospital. And, uh, and then when he awakes, he spends some time kind of talking about his face and how it's different and, and all the, those aspects of it. Still um, not ginger. Still not ginger. <laughs> Doesn't actually say that in this one. So and apparently this episode also introduces for the first time uh, the doctor's binary cardiovascular system. that has got two yes. hearts mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that plays. And in fact, in some ways, we could we could almost say that the eighth doctor movie is part of New Who in 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 an aspect in yeah. which in which case that that is another way in which Spearhead from Space sort of presages New Who because of this in the hospital the X ray someone thinks someone's playing a, a prank of, they, you you have to wonder when they wrote the 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 eighth Doctor movie that they went back to this because there's so many parallels yeah. You know the, the 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 scene where the doctor's pulling the clothes, where it's the costume, uh, right? Cape and everything. You know, very much looked like, uh, very similar to the the movie and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it was very yes, it was a very similar feel. Although um, both are very much of their time. This this feels very much mm-hmm. like a nineteen seventies TV show, and the Eighth Doctor movie. Feels very much like a 1990s <laughs> TV, TV movie. TV movie. Oh yeah. my gosh! Yes. Um, so, um, trying to, I'm just like to, to kind of approach this. Um, what we have is a uh, the 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 doctor. We have unit, uh, and mm-hmm. unit is now a a primary aspect of this show. Um, that's right. And- that's it's going to be a feature of the third doctor's time. Yeah, we'd met Unit on a few previous occasions in the Second Doctor's time, and in and some of those were kind of tryouts for could we make an Earthbound version of Doctor Who work? Because one of the things they realized is if they come back, they're not going to be able, they're not going to have the budget to go to all the alien planets in the same way, and so they were looking for a way to continue the series in a more Earthbound format. And that led to the concept of the Doctor's exile and working with Unit becoming the kind of key plot driver of the show for why the Doctor is encountering all of these paranormal threats in one time period and who does he have working with him against them. It's it's an interesting uh, tool. You know, when I find that when you put limitations on a story, it can create it can cause uh, the creators to be to be very creative uh, to, yeah, to, to it, try to solve that. It, if anything can happen, nothing is interesting. Right, right. And so when you with the limitations, the boundaries, um, they've got to become very creative in how to portray the the doctor still as interesting, uh, but within the confines of being bound on Earth. Uh, and so we've got the beginnings of that here, uh, especially where we we've got the introduction of the brigadier who. Uh, uh, you know, Reintroduction. The, uh, so he was in the second Doctor's time, right? A couple right. of times. Okay. He was there a couple of times, and he was a colonel initially. He's now been promoted to brigadier. Okay. And so the brigadier actually appeared in throughout Doctor Who from the second to the eleventh Doctor when he finally died in Matt Smith's era. Right. Right. Um, and it's. Um, and we also have the instruction of his new companion, uh, Liz Shaw, who right. I, I find her kind of refreshing. She's a bit of a, uh, uh, how is it, cynical? She's a bit, 
Yeah, she's she's a bit cynical. She's also she's she's not a screamer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the way they've set her up. She's she's a scientist in her own right. She has she's a professional woman. She is competent, and she will stand up to the doctor. And and, I, and in all of those respects, she's actually a little reminiscent of a of a previous companion for the second doctor named Zoe. Who was from the uh, she, Zoe was a very young woman, but she was also a scientist from the late 21st century. And she had a lot of those same characteristics, except she was cuter, I have to say. Um, <laughs> but then uh, Liz Shaw is a modern kind of a modern day Zoe, and she's much more the doctor's peer rather yep, than right. just his assistant. And that's something that actually didn't serve the character's longevity well, because Liz Shaw was only companion for one season. And then they brought in a more traditional female screamer companion. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, cynical is probably the bad word. Skeptical is the word like a scientific skeptic, uh, which was good. I think I liked that that interplay with her and the brigadier and then the doctor. She she really had that look of incredulous credulity down you know kind of look at the brigadier like you've got to be joking aliens invading earth <laughs> you know yeah like like it was sort of a pity for this this simple man who believes exactly. these fairy tales by the way I, one thing i wanted to mention is this episode is written by robert holmes and robert holmes is con- widely considered to be the best classic doctor who author um, he had a knack for making for creating really scary situations um, and uh, and he had kind of gothic sensibilities of let's, you know, take something familiar and make it scary. And he does that here with the autons by bringing, you know, dime store dummies to life and shooting, right. breaking out of windows and shooting people. And, you know, you could just imagine if you're a little kid at that time walking down the street, holding your mom's hand, looking at all the at all the really big mannequins in the store windows wondering, are they about to break out and start shooting all of us? Right. Um, mannequins are creepy They're, I mean, they've always featured yeah. in, in, in stories and movies and, and TV shows, especially like in a, in a, in a store at night, you know, and they're yeah. in there and they're just kind of creepy. Uh, right. I mean, even to they, today, Westworld does that on a, on an nth degree uh, with their warehouse of uh, robots uh, that are out of service, you know, that sort of creepiness. And the reason for that is that mannequins fall in the uncanny valley. As things get closer to being human, they seem more likable. But then when they get too close, all of a sudden the likability plummets and they become creepy. And that's where mannequins are in that in that zone. Right. But um, I wanted to note this is Robert Holmes's third uh, script. He's previously written two other stories, The Crotons and The Space Pirates, neither one of which was was great. But this is one where he really kind of comes into his own mm-hmm. and delivers a really effective, scary story. Right. And that's going to be the norm for him later on. And we've, did- also, we've also mentioned him uh, previously because he was the author of uh, The Caves of Androzani, the fifth Doctor mm-hmm. regeneration story, which is considered one of the best regeneration stories. He also eventually became the script editor for uh, Doctor Who for a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and in fact, uh, fans consider Spearhead from Space one of the best classic uh, stories, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think I've seen it uh, mentioned that way uh, very often. Um, the... Uh, the Autons go to the so what we have is, is we have we it, the 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 story starts with these uh, 
meteor-like things falling from space in formation. Ridiculous plastic meteors, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, At the same time that the Doctor lands, the TARDIS lands, and the TARDIS is in bad shape at this point. And the Doctor, like, the door opens, the Doctor falls out unconscious. Um, Incidentally, there is a fan production of the moments before that where they got John Pertwee to film his last moments as the Doctor in the TARDIS before he falls out. Oh, wow. And you can can find it on YouTube. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. We'll have to look for that. Um, And uh, by the way, we never see the inside of the TARDIS in this whole uh, episode. Uh, right. Do we do we see it at all in the first, in this season? The oh interior? yeah, yeah. We well, uh, I I think we see the interior. He certainly goes in and out of it a lot, working on different things, trying okay. to get it to, to start again. There's a point where he, he pulls the console out and yeah, is that, working on it in a in a actual uh, like a barn, basically. Okay. Yeah that that's in Inferno, which is the yep. final episode of this uh, season that yep. ha- also has uh, Liz Shaw in it. Okay, and the brigadier and, gets an eye patch, and we go to a world to a mirror yeah, universe. We got, we, got, we, we got the yeah the mirror the evil mirror universe Doctor Who version. Yeah, <laughs> oh, where great. the brigadier shot the royal family to execute them. <laughs> oh God, uh, that's good because uh, because we know that the evil version of all of us has an eye patch um, or a beard. One or a beard. Yes. Well, yeah. so we must oh, wait, be. The does that make me versions. the evil version? <laughs> We're the evil versions of us, apparently. <laughs> ah. Um, I'm under living that, uh, so I, I better live that up a little more. Um, it, and but by the way, it, eventually in the in the the third Doctor's tenure, he does get the use of the TARDIS back. We because we yes. saw that in his his regeneration episode, them traveling around. Yeah, they they got him three off doctors. Pl- the three doctors they got him off planet kind of once a season before the tenth anniversary. But for the tenth anniversary, they did the big three doctor story where they had all three of the first doctors, and he basically saved the Time Lords. And uh, after doing that, they they gave him his knowledge of the TARDIS and the key component back, and so he was able to travel freely after that. Okay, it's like it's like they stole the uh, the distributor cap off of his TARDIS. Yeah, uh, yeah. pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so, um, the doctor. Why did the Autons want to kidnap the Doctor from the hospital? What was why would why were they aware of him and why were they trying to capture him? Do do, do we get that established, or is mm. that that seems like a point, hole to me? One, well, there's one point in the episode where they you know the that. Um, I'm just blanking on his name, but the, the guy who's the, the Auton collaborator. Channing. Channing, where yeah. he says, I did. I can sense a, an alien presence. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's something of that where since they're they're connected through, you know, the psychic link, um, they could sense that there is a, a presence, a psychic presence that's not human. OK. And they, so did- they want to neutralize that as a threat. Okay. Okay. That, that must be it. Okay. Because then it's they not end up explicit, exposing themselves. It's not, it's not explicit in the episode, but that does kind of fit with the kind of the mythos of the episode. Okay. Yeah. And of course, we By get a way, nice creepy baby doll factory uh, yeah, montage yeah, as well. Yeah, no Pla- Plastic baby faces are horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Never ask how the sausage gets made. Yeah. yeah. Talk about Uncanny Valley. Um, yeah. I, I did want to mention. <laughs> I have a note here. TV shows from the 60s and 70s use a lot more string bass to signal foreboding than they do now. <laughs> like the, <laughs> the incidental music. Stock yeah. footage. <laughs> yeah. Um, the doctor has a shower scene. Oh, my. 
Uh, yeah, and 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 not only do we get to see the doctor in the shower, we get to see John Pertwee's tattoos from his yes. Royal Navy days back I, in World War II. That's I was just going to say that uh, that he has a, the doctor has a tattoo, which he apparently did not have before, and it it raises the, the, those interesting questions about regeneration. Of course, we know this. There's a real world explanation. Uh, different people in you know actors in their lives have different experiences, and so different things will happen. But you know, an in story explanation for why the regeneration of the Doctor would have a tattoo, and it's sort of that that larger question is, is how does regeneration result in a particular personality and and body? Um, what 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 determines how you end up? And and I, I don't has that ever been addressed in Doctor Who? You, well, they it, there there are bunches of fan theory. I mean, there has been endless oh, sure. endless discussion of this in the fan community. Um, in terms of in in terms of what I remember from the end of the War Games, uh, the Time Lords, you know, the Doctor objected to being um, put on Earth in part because he was known there and that would endanger him and so they say well your appearance has changed before and so at least in this case the time lord seemed to have been in control of the regeneration and i suppose one could say they gave him a tattoo to make him look more like an earth man but oh. um but i think frankly we're just not mentioned meant to notice the tattoo you know they, they do kind of skirt around and hint at the idea that if a regeneration is done under normal circumstances, not life in danger, but like say the end of a, you know, the, the life of a particular regeneration, uh, that it can be controlled. You know, the idea yeah. of Romana where she liked the appearance of this particular person that they had met a couple episodes before. And so Romana too became her. Yes. Also the sisterhood of Karn in night of the doctor where the yes. seventh where the eighth doctor regenerates, they've got it down to where you drink this cup, you're going to become this kind of person. Yep. And, and the 12th doctor actually talks about that um, because Peter Capaldi played a, you know, a guest right. spot as a Roman in Pompeii. And that's face is familiar. Why did I pick this face? Right. Yeah, also a guy, he was a guy in Torchwood. Right. And actually, given so so we may as well mention this is a ridiculous extreme to which fans have gone. But um, because various actors appear in recurring roles in Doctor Who, like Peter Capaldi, but also others, um, a startlingly large number of others, as we were talking about in our uh, in our recent episode on Tooth and Claw, mm -hmm. um there has been a fan theory developed that there are only a certain number of faces that exist in the Doctor Who universe. And you have one of these biological types and the doctor is, <laughs> is, 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 and, and so the, it's, it's not the almost limitless number of faces that exist in the real world, but there are these sort of archetypal human faces that keep getting recycled in the Doctor Who universe. They, they all you know, belong like, to the like, British Screen Actors Guild. Yeah, yes. <laughs> kind, of, kind, of like, kind of like snowflakes that in theory that no two snowflakes are the same, but eventually you will run out of patterns. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is a, a ridiculous theory. So, uh, by, by the way, speaking, yeah. speaking of archetypes, there's one here that will not be understood by a lot of Amer of the American audience. Um, we meet this character early on who's this kind of scruffy guy out in the woods. Seely. Um, Sam yeah, Seely. And, 
And it's not clear to Americans exactly what he is. He's a poacher. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a poacher is somebody who hunts illegally. And that's something that we have some familiarity with here in America. But in England, poachers are this major fixture in kind of the national folklore. They are viewed as kind of in a positive light, as these kind of independent individuals who would flout the nobility's laws and 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 hunt. And they're kind of like a Jesse James or a Billy the Kid kind of figure. They're they're sorta of outlaws, but they're also sort of romantic figures as well. Right. Right. And Seely is sort of played played for laughs a bit. Um Yeah. Uh, and definitely, his, definitely very. Him and his wife are definitely very comic characters. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I love. I love the way late in the story where the where his wife, you know, this, you know, kind of frumpy farm housewife, knows how to use a shotgun. Totally. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> the uh, the the doctor when he escapes from the hospital, he takes this old car owned by the uh, the doctor whose cape he stole as well. Um I think I recall from our discussion of the uh, the do- of the third doctor's regeneration mentioning that John Pertwee was a was an auto uh, oh, aficionado very much, yes. very much a car nut, very much a uh, loved automobiles, motors. So you know you, you know you, the smile that he had when he got in the car had to be as much John <laughs> Pertwee's as it did. The doctors. Well, I had to wonder if that was an intentional choice to pick like this old car that he had to take off in as opposed to one of the modern ones. Very stylish. And they're setting us up for something that's coming down the road, because at the end of the episode, when the doctor has agreed to work with unit in in compensation for working with unit, he he asks, could I get get that car? And he's told no. But then there's an illusion to maybe we can get something similar. And what they're going to get is a yellow version of that car, which the doctor will then trick out with auto driving capabilities and it's almost like Bessie. a 2018 car, yeah, um, <laughs> but it's uh, going to be called Bessie, and it's going to be one of his standard I, vehicles. I'm a bit of a car nut. I wouldn't mind having either of those cars, either the red one in this episode or Bessie. They look like they'd be a lot of fun to go cruise down the road in. So mm-hmm. Bessie's essentially like a Tesla today. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, auto driving, yeah. Yes. Um, so the the doctor has some memory loss. That's an aspect of... Regeneration, mm-hmm. regeneration that will occur uh, as, uh, in the future. Um, yeah. They, also, he gets he gets taken out of his own story for like two episodes here, which is kind of the way David Tennant gets taken out of his story for half of his right. regeneration episode. Right. It's a very slow reintroduction of the Doctor. Very much, we're given Unit and the Brigadier front and center for for much of the the first the first half of these four episodes. Um, also, the doctor getting shot at the end of episode one, that's very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I um, mean, with a, you know, just, wow, our hero has just been shot and is yeah. in mortal peril. And we have the cliffhanger. Except of course, he wasn't. He, except he, he wasn't. Right, it was a, a graze. Um, it, it, at, I have to mention that he, uh, he, he, as he's looking at his own new face, uh, he talks about how his eyebrows would be useful for communicating on the planet Delphon, and it reminded yeah. me of Peter Capaldi's <laughs> attack eyebrows. Uh, yeah, and, and and I like the, the way he actually says things in in Delphonese. <laughs> yes, he says uh, hello to uh, to Liz by waggling his eyebrows at her. Uh, I thought that was uh, it was funny. Um, 
so you, of course, in an episode where the main villain is uh, wax figures and mannequins, we have to have Madame Tussauds, which is the world famous mm-hmm. uh, wax museum that has locations around around the world, um, but no, notably in England. Yes. And, but, but what, what's kind of perplexing is, is this wax museum has wax figures of civil servants, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like, you know, the, the assistant deputy of, uh, of, uh, of, you know, the interior. Uh, yeah. It's like, there's these crazy, yeah. like, I mean, uh, what we, what we find out of course is that the autons are creating duplicates of people in the government in order to take over the government, but it just sort of begs credulity the idea that right. no one would think twice about like, you know, oh, here is Elvis and here is Gandhi and well, you see, here is you see this like the, general the president. You see like the president's display there and there's JFK and I think it was Nixon and a couple of, you know, Link, Abraham Lincoln. And then there's just these average people, these military <laughs> officers and civil servants. And there was some okay. bishop in the back. I noticed I, 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 yeah. I didn't get a sense of who that was. But yeah, that was that was sort of, you know, like. Hmm. I wonder why this museum has wax figures. Of, yeah. So, um, so th- we have this figure of Channing, and he has. Um, they've taken over the auton. Channing is an auton. Um, they've taken over this uh, baby doll plastic factory to make autons in. Um, and the head of the the factory is this guy named Hibbert, and I never got a clear sense of why Hibbert was going along with things, whether he was being strong armed. Or if he was somehow hypnotized, you know, under mind control. It seemed a little bit of both, kind of a combination of being forced into it. But also, you know, every once in a while he would touch the back of his neck and he'd go almost like into robot mode. Where it was kind of a little of both, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah. He kind of like would kind of his eyes would go wide and... um and, and that would be, you know, sort of uh, him in this c- controlled mode. Um, so we have this General Scobie, who is uh, the Brigadier's superior. He's regular British Army, uh, where um, the Brigadier is unit. And th- yeah, there is- so at, th- at this at this point, unit stands for United Nations Intelligence Task Force. So that's why the, the Brigadier keeps referring to Geneva. Because he's actually working for the United Nations, right. even though he's a British citizen, he's working for the UN. Right, and he's still a member of the British military. They make that clear when you sort know, General of like, Scobie orders them yeah. to stand down. It's like you are still British Army, right? UN peacekeepers are 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 still the the uh, from the military of their their home country, even when they're wearing the blue beret of the UN. And that's yep. a similar case here with the unit, although they wear a different uniform here and um, a different color beret. Yes, uh, there there is a bit of I think there's a bit of editing confusion here uh, with General Scobie, because, you know, at one moment he's in the unit lab and in the next he's in the museum with the doctor and the the the, the, uh, the it's with there's some confusion over which is the real General well, Scobie. It, yeah, it wasn't clear, but uh, the one that was that the doctor and Liz saw at the museum was the real general. He had been frozen by the oh. autons. Okay, so the people you know, in the museum are the are the real ones that they're keeping alive well, no, for some that, reason. That's where the confusion comes in because other than him, the rest of them were autons. Oh, okay, okay. Because yeah. when they show them coming to life, the only one that doesn't move is the general. Okay, because he yeah. was real. That's because remember there was the whole thing about the watch being wound and set to the right time. Right, right. Because and maybe that's because he hasn't been replaced. The others have not replaced their. Exactly. Real counterparts yet, whereas he has. Um, 
Okay. Yeah. yeah just that, seemed- was a, that was a clear, it, 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 but it, that's, yeah, that's at least yeah. my opinion. That's what was going on. Okay. Um, and then, I mean, it's, there's, there's not a lot to say about the rest of the episodes. Um, it, we have that straightforward. There's a little back and forth. Uh, we do see some fighting, some shooting by soldiers at the Autons. I mean, there's, there's a lot more battle in this uh, than we see at other times uh, in, in Doctor Who. Um, there's a, the moment when the Doctor confronts the nesting consciousness that's in this... Um, uh, box box uh and of course robert holmes as you say is a master of uh you know going into our fears tentacles are a prime yeah a human yeah. uh fear response and so also the the nesting consciousness pressing up against the glass looks even though we don't it's not tentacles inside the box it looks disturbingly yeah biological <laughs> yeah. yeah let's, See, I, let's I, I say that it looks like it looks like yeah. um neuron it almost oh. looks like a neuron inside that glass, you know, just the way that pla- the plastic that they use to kind of yeah. flex it makes it look yeah. that neuron too. sphincter or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, I have to say the John Pertwee's expressions as he's being attacked by the tentacle were just hilarious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was so funny. The the contortions of his face as he's wrestling with this rubber well, thing around him. I, it was, you know, of course, production values of the time. You could, if you watch it close enough, you could actually see where John Pertwee is moving the tentacle around him to make it look like it's choking him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's having to basically choke himself with it. <laughs> he did a better job of it than Bella Lugosi did with a, with a giant plastic octopus in Bride of the Monster. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's and, I mean Captain Kirk has had similar uh, uh, issues in uh, original yeah, Star Trek, so. Pr- production values of the time being was as they were, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um and so we we do have the, you know, the 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 nesting consciousness, the the autons they're um they're defeated and the uh, the doctor is um recruited into unit basically mm-hmm. um and introduces himself as John Smith. We've talked about this before. But yeah. it's kind of interesting that he sort of readily advances this. It doesn't seem like it is a there's a need for him to call himself John Smith. Why does he why does he like throw this name down to well, at this time? He's he's so it's not the first time he's used this name. Um it it's actually been used. It's come up in the show twice before, both in the Patrick Troughton era. Um, in the episode uh, Wheel in Space, his companion, Jamie, comes up with it and describes the doctor to someone else as Dr. John Smith. And then the doctor himself adopts it in the war games and introduces himself as Dr. John Smith. And so he's used it before, including given that the war games was just the preceding story. He's used it recently. But I would assume that because he's settling down in human society where people are expected to have names, if he's going to be interacting with people on a regular basis, he's he's more willing to to use that. Right. Um, well, and, and of course, the brigadier says, you know, for the paperwork, what name do I use? I can't just put the doctor. Oh, yeah. true. That's true. He does say that. Um so he I, I do like that, that. I do like the whole scene where the doctor tries to escape in the TARDIS. Yeah, and of course the brigadier is dressing down Liz Shaw, and all of a sudden you just hear boom. You know, the TARDIS <laughs> tries to take off, and it just goes boom, and, and the smoke, smoke comes, comes out. out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was very interesting that that the that the brigadier and unit were intent on preventing the doctor from leaving. That it was that it was you know they 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 wanted the doctor to stay right where he is. 
uh, un- yeah. sort of under their control. Un- unlike Queen Victoria and Torchwood, Unit sees the Doctor's value in combating exactly. paranormal threats. Right. To the point of kind of keeping him there, uh, you know, keeping preventing him from getting into right. his TARDIS. Now, uh, Jimmy, uh, remind me, is this the first time they've mentioned that the TARDIS lock has a... Uh, uh, biological biometric detector. Yeah. No, actually, I was going to mention that. Um, so that's something that goes all the way back to the William Hartnell and uh, Carol Ann Foreman, the first Doctor and Susan days. In one of the very first episodes, Susan explains that uh, the tar- even if you have a TARDIS key, you won't be able to use it because the lock is biometric. She doesn't use this term, but it, it has biometrical sensors that... Pr- that uh, uh, only ensure that who, only an authorized user is opening right. the TARDIS. Right. And you could argue that companions, the doctor gives command, companions permission. Yeah. You know, somehow. But yeah. Get, yeah. He tells the TARDIS, recognize this person's DNA or whatever. Okay. <clears throat> any other um, any other notes that you guys have on this epi- on these episodes? Anything left to, to say about it? Um I just had a couple of minor things since we have uh, in episode three, you know, since we once we have the plastic people replacement thing going on, um, it's inevitable. Somebody's going to have to have a fight with themselves, you know, encounter oh, themselves yeah. right. in a dangerous situation. Um, and then my other note was just that uh, that the Autons continue, you know, they're really terrifying in this. I think this is the most, and there's actually another one coming up in the John Pertwee era, but I think the John Pertwee era presentation of the Autons is the most effective. They're much more frightening here than they are later on, but they continue to play a role in the series. Obviously, they're in the revival episode Rose, and then later on in the Stephen Moffat era, Rory becomes an auton of a Roman soldier for a while and then ceases to be one when time yeah. is rewritten. And I never really understood that. He becomes but... a real boy again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. He is that, 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 that was him as a Roman soldier. That's right. Yep. Uh, as I a Roman that soldier auton. Auton. Um, interesting. You know, um, a couple of, you know, sort of behind the scenes notes. It was the, only episode entirely shot on film and on location. The uh, mm-hmm. because, but frankly, because of a, a strike by technicians at the BBC Television Center, they filmed the entire thing on location. No, no, uh, no sets uh, on the sound was, stages. Wow. I, I have to admit that was kind of noticeable because there were a couple of times when you could tell they were a little too far away from the microphones. Right. They sounded a lot like this. You know, <laughs> oh. I don't know how well that picked up here, but yeah, it, it worked idea. well, actually. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know if there's anything else um, to say about it. Uh, it's just, it's a. Uh, I, I have. I was saying earlier. I, I really enjoyed it. I like this. I think um, I really like the Third Doctor. I like his style. I like uh, this this kind of stories. There's something about oh, he's, a lot of, he's a lot of fun, and of course, as we mentioned in yeah. this regeneration episode to uh, Tom Baker, he was very much the Doctor James Bond. Yeah, and that appeals yeah. to me. Yeah. yeah. One thing you mentioned earlier was the introduction of the two hearts business, yep. and that's something that at least apparently contradicts prior continuity because previously, whenever they've referred to the Doctor's heart, it's always been one heart, and there have even been scenes like in Edge of Destruction, which we recently reviewed. Um, uh, 
uh, Ian Chesterton feels right. the doctor's chest and says his heartbeat is fine. Right. And um, so that led some fans to speculate that Time Lords only grow their second heart upon their first regeneration. Instead of the is, obvious, the obvious explanation of, hey, how do we make the doctor seem even less human? Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that was. Um, yeah. Because of his blood was also really bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. One uh, one other thing. Uh, we I guess we didn't comment on the the title of this episode, Spearhead from Space. I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna worry about episode versus story. That just is yes. too yeah. hard. Yeah. Um. But uh, in for this story, the title Spearhead from Space. Obviously, that's a reference to the initial Nestine meteors that mm-hmm. fall as the spearhead of a coming invasion. Yep. Right. Right. This is as a, well as the actual appearance of the meter meteors look like a spearhead. Yeah, right. And kind of like a football. Yeah. Um, we didn't mention the uh, the whole bit with the uh, the uh, salesman, John Ransom, um, who, you know, is we uh, had gone to America to make a bunch of deals for a new kind of doll and um, and came back. And w- now that the Autons had taken over, uh, he was cast out in the street and ended up discovering what was going on and being unfortunately, uh, vaporized by an Auton. Um, uh, a little, an interesting total s- annihilation. <laughs> total, yes. Uh, which is different from extermination, but uh, it's, it's close. Um, uh, you know, there's a, there were, there are a couple of side bits like that, the side characters who were interesting. So it was a, it was a complex story. I mean, it wasn't uh, just a mm-hmm. straightforward, uh, story, but it's, there's not a whole lot of, uh, I also like the fact it was only four parts instead of six or something. It felt tauter, you know, it was like it kept moving a lot better than six parters tend to. Right. Right. And that, you know, that's actually an interesting point is um, the early, the early, the first and second Doctor episodes, they really feel like stuff from the 60s, which where things took a lot longer. There was a lot more pauses, a lot more meaningful glances. It was a lot more like, frankly, like stage productions. Um, Right. Where you, it, there wasn't a, it wasn't the pace that we keep today. Whereas this one, nineteen seventy, we're starting to pick up the pace a bit. I mean, not quite two thousands pace of, right. of TV shows. We're not shows. racing yet. Yeah. Well, you, you definitely definitely get the feeling that as producers and as writers, they're starting. They've finally kind of gotten what TV can do, right? And what you really shouldn't do on TV. You know, that you don't need to be as explicit as you would writing for the radio or for stage. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So it's good. Um, Yeah. Like just touching the back of your neck to signify your mind controlled somehow more (laughs) subtle. Right. And, but, but also not drawing it out with a long uh, camera shot of that moment with no dialogue and no, that's really kind of that, that the difference in, 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 in timing and pacing. All right. So I think that's I think that kind of covers it. Um, if if, you know, you folks have anything more, we'd love to hear from you. What did you think of the third doctor story, uh, the spearhead from space? Uh, so let us know by visiting SQPN.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Leave us some feedback there or send us an email to Doctor Who at SQPN.com. We love to get your emails uh, and voicemails. If you, if you can, uh, we can play uh, vo- uh, audio feedback on the show. Uh, you can find links to all our personal social media and websites on our show notes on SQPN.com. Uh, we'll be back next time. We'll dis- we'll be discussing the 10th Doctor story, 
School reunion. School is in. Uh, by the way, in the meantime, I've mentioned this uh, before. Check out our newest podcast. Uh, it's called StarQuest Headlines. It's a uh, two-minute update of the latest headlines that we think will interest uh, the audience of SQPN. It's uh, every weekday we do it. And uh, you can find it at sqpn.com slash headlines. Uh, so in other than that, uh, until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. And Father Corey Stiga, thank you as well. That's my pleasure as always, and thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. And what, I f- no quote? I forgot to get a quote. <laughs> when will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.